0: I'm born from disparity, global in scope. In unequal systems, I thrive and elope. With core and periphery, my tail unfurls. Identify me as power dynamics swirls. What am I? That was this week's e-International Relations Riddle Challenge. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to find out the answer. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Thinking Global podcast by e-International Relations, the world's leading open access website for students and scholars of international relations. My name is Kieran O'Meara and as ever I am your host and this week I am joined by my co-host Catherine Dameron. Hi Catherine, it's great to have you with us. Hi Kieran, it's great to be back. And this week, the listeners are going to get to enjoy the second of two parts in our series discussing revolution with Professor George Lawson. Before we get to that, however, don't forget to click on that little follow or subscribe button. That way, you'll be able to get all of the content that Thinking Global has to offer direct to your device the moment that it's uploaded. And yeah, it makes us happy as well. <laughs> equally don't forget to go and find e international relations on social media on Twitter or X formerly Twitter Facebook LinkedIn and now Instagram and TikTok there you'll be able to find a ton of content <laughs> okay george lawson on revolution part 2 Professor George Lawson is Professor of International Relations at the Australian National University, having previously taught at London School of Economics and Goldsmith College. His work centres on historical sociology and revolutions. He is a co-author of the 2022 work on revolutions, Unruly Politics in the Contemporary World, You might recall that I was talking about this in one of our first laid-back book club episodes. He is also the author of Anatomies of Revolution, 2019, and the author of Negotiated Revolutions, the Czech Republic, South Africa, and Chile, 2016. He's also the co-editor of Global Historical Sociology and The Global, 1989, He is also the co-author, with Barry Bazan, of The Global Transformation, History, Modernity and the Making of International Relations, and that's 2015. And we're just going to dive straight back in to where we left you last week. So yeah, let's do this. Okay, so I'd like to start part two by asking one of the most important questions that comes from your work. And that's how and why should we think of revolutions as international or global phenomena? And please take as long as you want to answer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because they are, Kieran. Um, They're international all the way down. It doesn't mean that they're evenly international. And you'd have to look carefully at particular cases to think about the extent to which a particular revolution is international or global. But they all have international global dimensions, even if we sometimes cover up their traces. I mean, I'm often taken by how when I first learned about revolutions, you you always associate them with a particular state. It's the American Revolution, it's the French Revolution. Nowadays, you might think about the Haitian Revolution. But of course, those three revolutions are all connected. Um, The French emulated elements of the americans in terms of their idea of rights in terms of their idea of constitutionalism in terms of their ideas of republicanism there were intimate exchanges of people as well as ideas um clearly there was then the more geopolitical transfer of arms or alliances that were shaken up but of course you add haiti to that as well you know the richest most important french colony um which eventually, uh, after Napoleon uh, takes over the the French Revolution, he gives his um, brother-in-law command of retaking um, the island, which he fails to do. And that means that Napoleon gives up the French revolutionary project in the Americas. He sells Louisiana, um, what we think about the times, Louisiana to the United States. He um, backs out of the... Uh Americas altogether. He turns his attention to Spain and Portugal. That then has the effect of weakening the Spanish and Portuguese en- empires in the Americas. Meanwhile, the Haitians are busy, you know, helping to arm Bolivar as he starts um, his um, element of the Latin American uh independence movements. And so you get these entwined events, entwined people, entwined ideas. And it's our um separation, it's our contemporary. Suiting of um, of events and our apparent need to see them within this nation-state frame, that are not as only ahistorical, right? These weren't nation-states in any meaningful way at the time, they were all part of imperial and colonial formations of various kinds. Um, but even in a world that's much more associated with nation-states in the contemporary world, you can still see these extraordinary linkages. I mean, you think about, how could you understand Egypt in early 2011 without Tunisia in late 2010? How can you understand the Syrian civil war or what's going on in Yemen for that matter without going back and thinking about uh, an integrating analysis of 2011 across a region? So revolutions are international. It's our failure to see them as such because we're so bound up in this nation-state frame that's the problem. So if you think a little bit more systematically about this question. You know, you asked me to, to go on for a bit, so I will, Karen. It's it's your fault, it's your invitation. So if you think about the causes of revolutions, they're very often um, backed um, by a foreign power of various kinds or not, or at least there's some kind of regional entity involved. There's sometimes a conducive or not kind of regional or international setting. I mean, revolutions are more likely as empires are collapsing, Or if there's a revolution already underway in a neighboring state, that's why you get these great waves of revolutions in the Atlantic region at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th centuries or the 1848 springtime of nations, the constitutional revolutions at the beginning of the 20th century, various anti-colonial revolutions um, that take place in similar uh, time frames. And then, of course, 1989 uh, in East Central Europe in 2010-11 and in North Africa and the Middle East and so on. So you can immediately see that these, these events uh, are connected in terms of their causes. They're also connected in terms of how they play out. Um, people often cross borders. I mean, Olivier, as I just mentioned, was was armed by uh, Petillon in the southern part of uh, Haiti after they defeated the French in their revolution. Um, I mean, he also spent time in London at some point, so did other, lots of revolutions have been through London at various times, you know, Ho Chi Minh, Marx, obviously. Uh, a Lenin uh, and so on. So there's cross-border connections of people. There's ideas. There's slogans. You know, equality, justice, uh, and end to corruption. Um, these ideas are those that that you can find in in many different revolutions. Think about the figure of Che Guevara, for example. You know, however distorted. Think about the influence of of someone like Mao on revolutionary movements in many parts of the global south certainly east asia southeast asia and parts of sub-saharan africa so you've got images you've got slogans you've got media uh, that takes messages across borders you think about the al jazeera arabic and how influential it was uh, again in 2010 11 and Sometimes social media, we could talk separately about that uh, if you're interested, probably overstated as influence, but nevertheless something that that crosses borders immediately. Then think about some of the hardcore stuff, think about the transfer of guns, think about the transfer of money, without which revolutions are very difficult um, uh, to conduct at all. And then when we think about the the outcomes of revolution, then we can go again back to, to the emergence of the whole idea of modern revolution at the end of the 18th century. And not only do you get this notion that revolutions have no particular state, that they have to export their idea or they'll die. That's certainly what the French thought, or at least some of the more radical figures within the French Revolution um, thought. But you get the opposite of that. You get this attempt to contain revolution, this whole notion, um, which you could go back to Edmund Burke to find that a revolution can't be left in one country because of its influence, its potential influence, on its neighbors, what Burke called the law of vicinity. And that's why he backed counter-revolution against France, even as he was much less bothered about the revolution in the Americas, because the threat Burke thought about France was not just to the French, it was the whole of Europe. And it was the whole of the idea of the family of nations and the community um, that he thought held together a a concept uh, and a practice of Europe. So counter-revolution is international too. Um, uh, You think about, uh, the Saudi project uh, in uh, the contemporary Middle East, for example. A lot of that is to do with the, the post-1979 decision of the Saudis that they were going to hem in Iran as a revolutionary state. You know, partly successful, partly not. And we're seeing the influence of Iran uh, in Yemen or in Lebanon and so on. But also the, the distinctly international dimensions of, of Saudi counter-revolution, you know, partly through the Gulf Cooperation Council, partly through a more surreptitious means partly with the backing of the United States and so on. So sometimes there's the deliberate export of revolution. Sometimes there are counter-revolutionary projects that seek to hem in the revolutionary state. Sometimes there are more indirect effects, the kind of more more ideas of emulation, the idea that I mentioned earlier about, well, if they did it there, then we can do it here. And sometimes that might be your neighbor that looks a bit like you and sounds a bit like you and might have a similarly corrupt family running it, but sometimes you might try and emulate something a long way away. The Hong Kong protesters sometimes think of themselves as defeating the contemporary equivalent of the Soviet Union, for example, in the form of the Chinese state. You might have revolutionaries, as with you know, the Cubans, um, who inspire revolution, not just in the Americas, but in places in sub-Saharan Africa, to which they sometimes lend support and sometimes it's more this more indirect effect. Think about the kind of indirect emulation of, of an example like South Africa uh, around the world after, after 1994. So the revolutions are fundamentally international. I don't think that's in question. I think the question is exactly how, when, where, you know, which ones are more international than others and why. And because we've studied revolutions almost entirely within the prism of nation states, almost entirely as domestic phenomenon, as if, they weren't international. I think we're at the fairly early stages of working through some of these ideas. I think there's a pretty broad acceptance, in the scholarship on revolutions, that this is important stuff. But perhaps, which is good for you, Karen, if this is what your project's going to be about, probably less specificity about how, when, where, which ones. And I think that's the real question for,
0: for you and others to take on. Great. Thank you so much. I think you probably made Karen's day. As this will be the topic of my thesis, yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So it's up to me to ask the next one. What should we include and exclude from the category of unruly politics?
1: Well, I guess, you know, ruly politics, whatever that is, but, you know, less facetiously, I think what's important there is that notion of, of a transgressive politics, something extra constitutional versus something that's regular, even if it's dramatic. So you take the stop the war protests, um, actually after the Iraq war in 2003-04, or some of the massive protests we got um, after the financial crisis, 2007-08. In Western states, those protests were enormous, but they were still regular. They were still permitted. Um, They were allowed. Now there may have been fringes of them that weren't, that became violent, but they were considered by most People, and certainly by the governments and the regimes as being illegitimate. Now of course you take those protests, in fact you take much smaller version of those protests and you put them in an autocratic setting, you put them in Hong Kong, you put them in Shanghai, you, know, you put them in Minsk, um, you put them in very many places around the world and suddenly they look very different, they look transgressive, um, they look unruly, they're not permitted. So it's not so much the thing, the object, it's not so much, is this a march or is this a petition or is this an occupation that matters? What matters is what context is this uh, event taking place in and is it permitted or not? And one thing that's add to the point I made earlier about the vulnerability of these personalistic regimes with these single characters, these kind of autocratic um, particular type of personalistic regimes is that often everything's effectively uh, disavowed. So, you know, you could have a, a movement that's complaining that the bins haven't been collected on time. And that would effectively be existential because you don't have any type of transgressive or unruly politics that's permitted. You know, think about the contemporary Saudi state, uh, for example, it would be pretty difficult given that you're barely permitted or not permitted to, to put even the mildest critique of the state on social media, let alone start organizing a union or marching in the streets, then clearly almost anything is gonna be unruly and transgressive, and sometimes it is. And sometimes things can snowball from extremely humble beginnings. Most revolutions start with acts which sometimes would go nowhere and sometimes ignite a people. You think about the self-immolation of um, suppose Azizi in Tunisia and whatever it was, November 2010. Well, it's not the only self-immolation that happens. But at that point, it ignites a snowball that brings down eventually the regime itself. You think about the poetry readings at Tehran University that took place in relatively early 1978 and 18 months later, you've toppled you know, probably the US's um, biggest ally, um, certainly its biggest ally in the region at the time, but one of its greatest allies in the world, armed to the teeth, apparently you know, impregnable, impregnable um, uh, ruler. So sometimes there can be these extremely humble origins. So I don't think you need to concentrate so much on the scale or the size or the thing itself. Is just look for the particular context, the particular state society relations, the particular constitutional structure that that uh, this event is taking place in. And sometimes something apparently humble will actually end up being radical, where in another setting it wouldn't be radical at all. Um, so something unruly, I guess, is the opposite of this kind of regular Type of politics as normal, but it's something deeply transgressive and threatening and potentially even existential to the state itself.
0: Welcome to the intermission of this week's Thinking Global podcast episode. Now, normally it's one of my favourite times of the week because I get to read out the letters from you. Now, this week, I'm going to read out our favourite letter from the Open Letter competition that took place over the course of the last week. So, we asked you to send in your letters explaining which international relations theory was your favourite, was your favourite to read about, and why. In under 200 words. And this is the winning letter. Dear E-International Relations, Realism, my favourite international relations theory, is like enjoying a plate of ugali, Swahili for stiff porridge, a staple in African meals, made by mixing cereal meal with boiling water. Bold, straightforward, and unapologetically pragmatic. It is doubtlessly appealing to me as an East African, since just as African parents emphasise the importance of a realistic approach to life, realism teaches us that in the global arena, it's survival of the fittest. Imagine international politics as a lively African Soko, Swahili for marketplace. Realism is that seasoned negotiator who haggles fiercely, recognising the harsh realities of power dynamics. It's like navigating a bustling market, knowing that sometimes you need to throw in a bit of tough love to secure the best deal. So, whether you're enjoying a toothsome plate of ugali or navigating the complexities of global politics, realism's acuity is your seasoned companion, urging you to keep it real in a world that sometimes needs a dose of blunt honesty. Warm regards. And that letter was sent by Emilius John Amuli in Tanzania, East Africa. Well, Emilius, we just love this letter. We thought your imagery was just fantastic. So we had to have you win the open letter competition. Thank you so, so much for sending your letter in. And thank you so much to everybody that also sent letters in that we didn't read out. There were some absolutely fantastic ones. And don't forget, we love hearing from you. Please, please continue to send in your letters, and we'll read them out on the podcast, to thinkingglobal.eir at gmail.com. We want to hear all about what it is you're reading at the moment, what it is you're publishing on, which articles and books and reviews you've been reading on e-international relations, and definitely which episodes of this podcast you've really enjoyed listening to. So, before we get back to Professor Lawson, first of all, please, please, please remember to send us your letters. Secondly, don't forget to click on that little follow or subscribe button. Just click on that little button. (laughs) That way you'll be able to get all the content Thinking Global has the moment it gets uploaded. And thirdly, please don't forget that at Thinking Global, we're part of e-International Relations. e-International Relations is able to produce the content it produces because of the small army of volunteers that commission, edit, and publish that work. So please, if you enjoy the content that eInternational international Relations provides, think about maybe giving a donation. And there is a link to that in the description box. Okay. Let's get back to Professor Lawson. A key part of your work concerns negotiated revolutions. What exactly are negotiated revolutions, and why have they become more significant?
1: I'm not sure how significant they still are. I think there was a moment in which it looked like a model that had real staying power. And I think elements of that model are still in place and others probably not, partly because the world itself has shifted. So what they are or what they were was a particular model for carrying out those elements of revolution that I talked about earlier, major, major social transformation that was rapid and forcible and involve mass participation but what was really different about them was rather than being some kind of you know, fight to the finish whether that was carried out by a guerrilla force or a people's army or a revolutionary party of some kind effectively combatants sat around a table sometimes literally and negotiated the means of the seizure on the one hand and the surrender on the other so the the emblematic instances of the the revolutions that uh, in East Central Europe yeah, in 1989 uh, in Poland and then um, Hungary and uh, what was Czechoslovakia at the time and so on. But even then, you know, the model was is only stylized. We remember that point that no concept and no theory can or certainly should sweep up all details. You need to be careful about when those details are significant. And even at the time, there were cases that didn't conform at all. So Romania was an example where there was, violence and um, you know, the dictator Ceausescu was actually executed live on TV effectively on, on Christmas Day. So even then, um, it was a partial phenomenon. But I think what's, what's important about that as an adaptation in revolutionary practice was less the notion of the round tables and the negotiation and more this commitment to unarmed rather than armed struggle this sense, which had been around in in radical parts of the civil rights movement and had expression in in various eruptions like that that took place in Europe in 1968, that what you didn't want to do if you were fighting a state that was armed to its teeth was take up an armed struggle against it, because that simply legitimised their use of force and they were bigger and tougher and meaner than you, and therefore that was one you were always likely to lose or you'd have to be pretty lucky to win or... Um, kind of extraordinary to where usual set of circumstances would have to align. So I think there was a strategic logic about unarmed conflict that said this is more likely to win uh, in that type of context. And there was also, of course, a normative dimension. There was a commitment um, by many activists to unarmed violence as a force for good. And of course, these two rationales strategic and normative really come together in the notion that if you have an unarmed movement, they're much likely to be bigger than an armed movement. You know, it's a difficult threshold for someone to not just say, okay, I hate the regime enough. I can't take it anymore. I'm willing to take up transgressive, extra constitutional struggle against them, no matter what happens to me. And then putting a gun in their hands or putting a bomb in their hands or asking them to go and train and join a movement that's uh, taking up armed struggle of one kind or another, particularly in a situation that feels, if not hopeless, then certainly unlikely um, that it's going to end in victory. So the threshold for joining an unarmed movement is lower, because your hope is that the state is not going to fire on its own people if they're unarmed. You are likely to have a much more inclusive movement, whether in terms of gender or in terms of age or in terms of, sections of society more generally and that model I think we still see Um, lots of revolutions lots of revolutionary movements attempted revolutions have this idea that big is good Um, that and the way to get big movements together is by being fundamentally unarmed even if there's then discussion around the edges about do you have an armed flank um, of one kind or another and is that unarmed flank willing to fight with fists or sticks or Molotov cocktails or some version of that? Or are they actually going to be armed with guns and bombs and be organized and all the rest of it? Another element that I think is still around, at least in terms of debates, is is this idea of what happens if we win, this relationship between means and ends. It used to be, I think, put relatively crudely that the point of revolutions was to win. The point of revolution was to seize the state because without the state, you couldn't carry out the transformation. And so it was all hopeless. The idea of ends are being far more important than means. And you know the, the classic exemplar of this would be Lenin. I mean, the, he'll do a deal with whoever, and then, you know, you get into power, you get rid of your rivals and you carry out the project. And that doesn't really matter because the point is to win. And if you can't win, then you can't do anything in terms of the, the movement and the project in the first place. And I think that's really switched. There was this move in the people power movements that of course don't start in 89, essentially Eastern Europe but start in the Philippines in 86, And like I said, it's this longer lineage in civil rights movements of various kinds. And actually further back than that, if you go to the 19th century, that actually you can't have good ends without good means, that the state itself will be corrupted or even if the revolutionary movement succeeds, if it's had this despotic ends oriented, Um, type of logic in the first place so you need to be deliberative you need to be horizontalist you need to have a good set of practices an inclusive set of practices within the movement if you are to have any hope of generating something that's more just in the aftermath of a revolution itself and then another dimension probably the final dimension I'll talk about that I think is still around is and they're all linked um, is that states themselves even when these um, sort of new style movements whatever we're going to call them negotiated people power you know radical liberal color and so on when they win as I said before they have the kind of opposite problem of, of revolutionary states in the past they had the problem of of kind of excess um, and now there's the problem of moderation you know you've done a deal with a bunch of people so what's to stop old state elites reasserting themselves what's to stop Big capital reasserting itself if you don't have a project of radical redistribution and nationalization like socialist movements did in the past and land reform and all the rest of it if your basic idea now is just to kind of carry on and you know, tidy up the edges and reform a bit or maybe liberalize even more then um, you're not doing anything to expropriate the expropriators and they'll they'll re-emerge in some form or another and the, the real tragic exemplar of that was Egypt after 2011, in which you've got a counter-revolutionary movement uh, that re-established control in 2013, minus Mubarak, but pretty nasty and still extremely nasty today because lots of the old guard were still around, um, sometimes in the same positions, more or less, in the armed forces and the coercive apparatus, and sometimes they just shifted a little bit in terms of what they did or they sacrificed one or two in order for the main... Um, um, characters to stay in place. So some elements of what this idea or model of negotiated revolutions are still with us. And I think some are much less with us like the negotiation itself and like the roundtable. But even then, I think we've got to be careful because I think what we're seeing is another amendment and maybe quite a significant amendment in revolutionary movements and their strategy. If you look at Myanmar, for example, You can see that there are elements of this mass participatory, horizontalist commitment to unarmed, protest um, there. But there are also groups who are not just willing to take up arms, but think it's the only way that they can win. And there's an alliance between the two at the moment, sometimes formal, sometimes informal, and layered onto an extremely complex ecology of protest movements. Um, And I'm unclear where that's headed, this kind of hybrid form. It's been around in Rojava for a while that there's a combination of a commitment to deliberation and horizontalism and some extraordinary um, politics and and practices around gender, for example, alongside a commitment to a particular type of militarism um, and a particular type of kind of vertical command structure. So there seems to be a kind of hybrid of the old and the new emerging. And I think what that tells us is that it's relative, it's revolutionary practice, it's revolutionaries, it's revolutionary practitioners who will actually be the ones on the ground, assessing context, assessing possibility, negotiating between ideology and normativity on the one hand, and then a strategic possibility on the other, that themselves are the great theorists of revolution. I think that's one of its great interests, at least to me as a field of social scientific inquiries, you can't stay within the academy if you're not just to understand revolutions, but you're to theorise them, you, know, you can't theorise revolutions without Marx and Lenin and and Castro and Mao and Alexandra Kollontai and Rosa Luxemburg and many, many more. And that's the same today. We can't understand contemporary revolutionary practice and the form they take without listening to, hearing from, and taking seriously the views of revolutionaries themselves. So as well as that relationship between theory and history we talked about earlier, we need to add a third element, which is that of practice. That this relationship between history, theory, practice is the one that we need to be alert to, particularly when we have something as adaptable uh, and something as important as, as revolutionary
0: change. Hmm, interesting, interesting. So, Professor Lawson, we only have time for one more question, and this is a question that we ask everybody that comes on the podcast, and that's simply, what is it to think globally for you?
1: What is it to think globally? I think it's to think in two registers simultaneously, which is first, I think, one of humility, and the second one is a, is a kind of cosmopolitanism or a kind of kind of asymmetrical cosmopolitanism so in terms of the humility I think it's to recognize that each um, state that we've grown up in thinks it's exceptional Um, and I guess in one way of understanding this all of them are but in another I think more important one none of them are you know states are coercive projects that have conquered and defiled and repressed Um, both their neighbours and their publics in order to take the form that they have. There's nothing organic or natural about some states and unnatural um, and um, about others. Um, There are histories of bloodshed, of empire and colonialism and racism and patriarchy behind all states. And I think thinking globally allows us to escape the immediate parochialism of those claims of exceptionalism and approach others with a degree of humility, because of course, particularly for those of us who've grown up in the West, the sense of privilege um, that those tales of exceptionalism have told are ones that are extremely dangerous if swallowed and taken for granted. So I think there's a humility that comes from thinking globally rather than within a particular cultural or state context that I find at least um, extremely powerful. Then in terms of the cosmopolitanism, I find that I don't, when I think globally then, um, see it as a kind of assemblage of difference. I don't think of this as just saying, well, okay, there's the British experience and there's China and there's Russia and there's, you know, Burkina Faso and there's Brazil and you put them all together and you kind of have a of you know, potpourri or a smorgasbord or, you know, a kind of you know, hybrid fusion soup or something. Um, from that, what you have actually is a way of understanding the necessarily joined up formation of how we got here. And I don't know you two, but I would imagine you have stories of migration not far away. I would imagine you have all sorts of um, uh, global dimensions um, in your personal life as well as in your politics. And when I start teaching Intro to IR, I start with um, a picture of what I asked, um students um you know if you were to tell me um what you think a quintessential british you know cuisine is you know cute joke lots of laughing and all the rest of it you know what would you say and the answer is usually fish and chips So, okay well where's fish and chips come from you know potatoes are not indigenous to britain they're not indigenous to europe they were discovered in big quotation marks by europeans when they went over to the americas there's colonialism there's capital there's expansionism of various kinds they're then re-imported to europe someone in you know france or belgium you know, i'm not getting into that you know chops them up fries them and hey presto they're then exported over to britain at some point then you think about the fish part and the fish part the battering the fish the frying it and all the rest of it is almost certainly a jewish tradition from southern europe that then again is imported through migration and histories of capital and so on to Britain and as far as I know the first fish and chip shop is opened in in the east end of London by a Jewish immigrant in the 1870s and that becomes then framed as some kind of you know natural British um, gift again cute laughable um, sort of quotation marks to the world. So immediately you know, the taken for granted ways we think about something is exceptional. We find histories of cosmopolitanism. And I don't mean that some kind of, you know, sort of Kantian, you know, kingdom of ends, Uh, we're all living in, in peace and harmony, if we're some kind of, you know, Republican democracy. I mean by that some much more frictionful cosmopolitanism, some recognition of difference, some recognition of asymmetries of power, but nevertheless, a way of thinking and being together that I at least find comforting to find that um, all peoples around the world, I think without exception, are joined together really quite fundamentally, um, not just in some sort of abstract normative sense because of our common humanity, but because of shared histories, because of concrete, real experiences of empire, of colonialism, of capital, and much, much more that actually tie us together however asymmetrically and i think recognition of that asymmetry but recognition of that togetherness provides some kind of opportunity however fraught however full of friction of thinking together so i guess it's those two elements that i that i see the the thinking globally aspect as as being so powerful um, towards
0: What a fantastic answer to that question, I have to say. (laughs) Anyway, Professor Lawson, I'm afraid that is all we have time for today. So thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Professor Lawson. That was really, really fascinating. It's a pleasure, Catherine. Thanks for
1: asking me. Thanks, Kieran.
0: Wow, that was just an amazing two-part series, and yeah, that Professor Lawson was just brilliant to have on. I have to say, I am biased, but absolutely brilliant. What are your thoughts, Catherine? I loved Professor Lawson's fish and chips example of just how international and global our national identities are. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now... I just need fish and chips. (laughs) That's going to be on my mind for the rest of the day. So, Professor Lawson, thank you so much for coming on. And now I need fish and chips because of you. From revolution to rock eel. (laughs) That is the worst dad joke I have done in ages. (laughs) you'll be able to find loads of international relations content on eInternational relations, the world's leading open access website for students and scholars of international relations you'll be able to find loads of free books articles, reviews, interviews you name it, we got it (laughs) at e-ir.info go check it out, there is a link in the description box alongside that, before I leave you and before we get to that riddle please, please click on the little like, share, subscribe, or follow button. Tell everybody you know about us. <laughs> it would mean the absolute world to us. And, of course, means that you get all that content straight to you as it gets uploaded. And before we go to this week's riddle challenge, I'd like to say a massive thank you to Edward Curry, to Sharika Decker, Jennifer Engel, Nigel Huckle, Daniel McDade, Eduardo Pieroni, and Romanos Orpheus Tophis, who work on the E! International Relations podcast team. You are amazing, and this podcast wouldn't be a thing without you, so thank you so, so much for all the work you do. I'd also like to say a big thank you to Material Music for providing the music, and also to my co-host this week, Catherine Dameron. Catherine, amazing job. You rock. Now, to this week's Riddle Challenge. I'm born from disparity, global in scope. In unequal systems, I thrive and elope. With core and periphery, my tail unfurls. Identify me as power dynamics swirls. What am I? And the answer was... Dependency theory. Yes, dependency theory. Well done if you got it correct, and congratulations to this week's shoutout winner, Michelle Plunkett Cole at Plunkett Cole on Twitter. Well done, Michelle. You got it in literally three or four minutes, I believe. So yeah, great work, great stuff. Thank you so much. And well done if you got it right at home. Keep your eyes peeled for this week's Riddle Challenge. Don't forget to find eInternational Relations on social media, on TikTok, on Instagram, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and on X, formerly Twitter. And That way you'll be able to find loads of extra content that we put up. And alongside that, as I say, if you do enjoy the output of the International Relations, please consider a donation. There is a link to that in the description box alongside a link to the E! International Relations page. So I guess there's not much left to say apart from the fact that I'm Kieran O'Meara. I've been Catherine Dameron. And together we've been Thinking, Thinking Global. Global. See you next week.